This morning, we are continuing our coverage of the Abuse in Care Royal Commission of Inquiry, which yesterday released a new study that estimates up to 250,000 children, young people, and vulnerable adults were abused in state and or faith-based care between 1950 to 2019. The study estimates that they were part of a cohort of up to 655,000 children, young people, and vulnerable adults in state and faith-based care during that period. Most people in care were in either faith-based and social welfare settings with an estimated 254,000 people in each setting followed by health and disability settings at around 212,000 people and education care settings at 102,000 people. We're joined now on Pacific Breakfast by the Commissioner for the Royal Commission of Inquiry, Abuse and Care, Sandra for more. Now, just a little bit of background on Sandra Practice as a lawyer in the Auckland region for the last 20 years, representing children, young persons, and their families. She grew up in Mangere and has a strong ties to the community through her work in the voluntary sector. Ali Momo was appointed to the county's Manukau District Health Board in December 2010 following a uh, six-year term as commissioner with the Families Commission. Now in 2016 she was made a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit for her services to the Pacifica community and to youth. In 1995, this is going all the way back, throwback, she was also bestowed the title of a Li'imuamu title by her family in the village of Sanapu in Samoa. She joins us this morning and we say talo for love and love fionga, a and welcome to the program. Good morning, Lawafiyonga Tawili Ili and all your listeners. What a pleasure it is to be able to join you this morning. Thank you for the invitation. The pleasure is ours. We finally get to track you down. We've been after you since halfway through the year. <laughs> you are. <a laughs> My apologies for that, but I hear you've had some very good representation from the commission in the form of our councillor, Sister Tanya Chuck, yes, and a couple of others in our community engagement team down in Wellington. So we're very. Um, we're very grateful for the coverage and the interest for an issue that's very important uh, for our Pacific people and has had a negative and a strong long-lasting effect, but one that we hope is um, able to be addressed um, well in the coming years. Mm. Um, yes, well, look, uh, going back to your point about the representation, we were very blessed to have Tanya, you know, answer our call even in early, late hours of the night. And then we were even more blessed when we had Moya Apulu um, in the studio. And of course, we've fitted great, great stories. And we're hoping with these testimonies, it breaks down walls that are up there and before our people to come forward and, and be a part of this so that we can begin the healing process. Now, Ali Momo, let me just quickly get a, um, a sense of the role as Commissioner, uh, that you are currently the head of for the Abuse and Royal Commission uh, of Inquiry. So I'm one of five commissioners. Um, our chair is um, an ex-district court judge, Coral Shaw. We have two Māori commissioners and um, Paul Gibson, who has a very rich and strong background in our disability community. In fact, he was the former human rights disability commissioner. So we bring a diverse range of skills to the table to be able to look and actually investigate and analyse what actually happened in terms of historical abuse in our different care settings, 
in both uh, the state and faith-based. So it's really important that we apply an analytical and practical lens to understand, first of all, how did these young people, children, vulnerable adults come into care, and then be able to understand how and why the abuse was allowed to happen. And then, of course, looking forward, how do we actually address using the insights, the themes, uh, the wisdom that's coming through from our survivors and other witnesses, coupled with what we're finding in research, to really offer practical solutions to the government of the day uh, to address this um, issue in a really significant and hopefully a transformative way. I think that um, I, I want to stress the significance to our listeners this morning of the importance of having representation. Uh, having you there is mm-hmm. massive for our for our Pacific uh, people because you know usually we've been the recipients of study where we've been looked at instead of being participants. So um, you know it's it's very good for us as Pacifica within these particular studies. Now um, we just read out the figures of the uh, the cohort that um, you know that we've big numbers commissioned by the inquiry. Can you please give us an overview of some of the main findings from this study? Uh, Certainly. Um, the, the numbers are staggering, as you can well see. And I think being able to unpack the numbers, even at an early stage and in a broad sense, it gives the nation really um, an understanding that this is a problem um far more widespread than what I think is actually understood in our communities and in our society and of course as a nation as a whole. So the study was really commissioned, the cohort study, because we wanted to understand actually how big was this problem. And when you when you talk about, uh, when you raise the issue of representation, Pacific peoples are specifically mentioned in our terms of reference as a cohort of people who were disproportionately represented over the period that actually we're looking at. That's 1950 to 1999. Of course, no surprises what the study has also turned out and confirmed what we we uh, already knew both from other studies, but also anecdotally, was that Māori um, are more disproportionately represented than any other group. The vulnerable um, category, I suppose, I mean, everyone's vulnerable in this group, but actually disability, one of the things that's really coming to light for us is the invisibility of this community. So, of course, if you're a young person of both Māori and Pacific heritage, and you have a disability, there's a very high chance that if you were in care, you were represented in those numbers. So it's really important that we pay attention to the numbers because, of course, the flow on for that is how do you then address it proportionally overall as a nation to benefit all communities? In terms of the actual tangible outcomes of this inquiry, you know, because um, I'm sure there's been a lot of emotions, a um, lot of blame, and who do you blame, and a lot of anger, and all of these emotions for those who have, uh, who were abused in care. If you were to look at the outcomes of the commissions and these findings, where would we see the tangible changes inserted into the lives of Kiwis moving forward, and some sort of uh, reparation for those who the mm-hmm. abuse happened to? 
So bearing in mind that this is our interim report, so these are our initial findings of what we've found over the last 18 months, the common themes, the key messages that are coming through. I think one of the things to really note is that actually the wide range of abuse that actually occurred. So we're looking at physical, emotional, psychological, medical, sexual, educational, spiritual, and cultural neglect. So when you look at all of the different types of abuse and the, the entry points, I suppose, we're really having to look overall at our different government sectors because often um, it's, it's our agencies that provide support. Having a, a rich understanding actually of the interconnectedness of the abuse and the type of actual wraparound support. So I guess what I'm saying is it's not, it's not enough to just address um, the financial side. So, so one of the things that we've looked at very closely and we've had a couple of hearings on already is the issue of redress. So redress is how do we attempt to put this right? What have the government agencies undertaken today? Financial compensation has often very much been to the fore, but what we've heard from many of the survivors that have been so brave in coming forward is that actually the money's not enough. The lifelong impacts, the wraparound services, actually understanding what they need over a prolonged period of time. So it might be help with housing, it might be help with education, the, intergen, uh, trans, the intergenerational transfer, sorry, I should say of the trauma and the impact of their families and the support that's got to go on there can't be understated. So when, you, when we're asking for what are the tangible outcomes, I think if you look at all of the different agencies right now and the reforms that are going on, uh, you know, certainly, you know, some good work has begun, but there's a connectedness that I think um, is yet to be articulated better. And that's something that the Commission is looking at in terms of the systemic issues that have become real barriers for us to achieving, um, you know, the golden package, so to speak. And it really begs the question, is there a golden package? What does that actually look like? And if so, for whom? Exactly. I mean, the the different experiences, the different backgrounds, uh, um, and, and the different sort of abuse that you were speaking of. But um, not only that, I'm sure part of a lot of the survivors today and those who were abused is that, that, that thing you hear never again. I'm sure that is a big part of using what they've gone through to make sure that Aotearoa from here on in, um, you know, will have some sort of way to counter all of what they experience. Now, the chair of the Royal Commission, Carl Shaw, stated the study also identified key gaps, uh, key gaps sorry, in New Zealand-specific abuse prevalence data, now particularly for certain population groups such as Maori and Pacific and disabled people. Now, can I ask, what are those key gaps and how will the Royal Commission seek to sort of fill these gaps with the outcomes of the inquiry? So the key gaps really, one of them is actually in the information, is actually in the data. So what, what we've come to learn, and, and uh, many researchers would probably know this if they were very specifically in this area, is that actually there is no one repository that keeps all of the data on Pacific in terms of um, historical abuse. So we're having to glean it from lots of different sources. In some cases, the data is actually just not there. In other cases, it's actually been misreported. So um, we've heard lots of anecdotal uh, evidence and information that actually identity 
wasn't, in terms of Pacific Island, wasn't even a gap. And often the decision makers who were um, admitting you into, into a lot of these institutions, they would just look at you. And even though they're Pacific, they might make the make, make a guess, oh, you look like a Māori. So they'll just tick the Māori box. Or else they'll put you in another box, which we've come to understand is other. That's one of the biggest, that, that's a big gap. Another gap is actually where the information has had to, has been kept in manual data sets and they're having to be transferred to digital um you know, frameworks now and and in terms of, of record keeping, if the transfer hasn't happened or the records are no longer available, the records are now no longer accessible, they're just gone. And so it's having to really look at the broader picture and having to pull together a number of data sets to kind of really understand and get a fuller picture of what happened um, during the 1950s through to, through to the current date. Certainly, uh, you know, there's been an improvement in the latter years, but that's only been very recently. This is why our call for Pacific, um, we're, and we're so grateful to people like Moya Bolu Francis and to Fiki and a number of our other Pacific survivors who have, um, you know, really courageously spoken up. It's not easy. It's not easy, and we stand with them in supporting them uh, to be able to, to talk about something so deep and so personal in such a way as not to, not to demonise the families, but, but actually to understand the circumstances of what really happened. Oh, they are very courageous indeed. And, you know, Pacific Circles, that's the one thing we always tend to look at is, uh, you know, the person's family and who did this and who did that. Unfortunately, all of those uh, looking for a bum to kick, so to say, uh, doesn't really do anything for the victim. In terms of the timeline for the remainder of the Royal Commission, is it time frame dependent or is it data availability based? No, so we, we are finite in the sense that we have a start date and a finish date. So at this point, our start date was November 2018 when the Royal Commission, when the commissioners actually were all fully appointed uh, at that inaugural um, date. And at this point, our final report is due to government in January 2023. So in that time period, uh, we are running as fast as we can to be able to ensure We've got um, enough and um, broad information to be able to, to paint as good as a picture as we can, you know, being perfectly honest, um, to really understand what happened. And there's lots of crossovers as well in terms of the different themes. So I think we're getting um, a really good understanding of what this landscape looked like and just how harrowing it was for our, our survivors, our children and young people, our vulnerable adults that were in these placements. In terms of, um, I guess, the expectation and the desired outcome for you as one of the commissioners and for the rest of your colleagues, once this report is handed over to government, what are some of the hopes that you'd like to see have impact in the decision-making of our government moving forward? Mm. Probably premature for me to say what the end findings will be, but certainly we are aspirational that it will lead to a transformative change in how we as a nation overall actually care for our children and young people when they're in care. So we know that um, when 
when young people are in these institutions, there's a whole lot of rules and regulations that apply. There needs to be a much more transparent system in place and the clarity to understand, but also, you know, our, our, it has to be normalised that young people can speak up about things that are not right. Things that, you know, people don't go... The assumption is that if people are placed in care, it's because it's a better option than where they currently are. But certainly what we've seen, that has not been the case for a vast number of our survivors that um, we've been very privileged to hear from. Final message, I need more more to those of our Pacifica population that uh, were abused and have yet to, that are still sort of living in that darkness, but are still yet to come forward. I would really like to just to be able to reach out to our Pasifika, um survivor community, but also to their families and to the witnesses of those who may have worked in, in the institutions. This is a moment in time for us. We have an opportunity that's actually provided for in legislation to be able to speak our truth, to be able to honour and and acknowledge and in many cases validate uh, the Pacifica experiences uh, that happened and for them to really be able to offer up some of their wisdom and in many cases it'll be perennial it'll be ongoing to actually help us truly influence the change that's required you know we can learn lots of things from books and past studies but actually it's the honor of hearing from the survivor voices because without their voices we can't do this work effectively they are very much the center and the focus their experiences is what guides us that that's the truth that's the truth to power statement really comes from them and you you hit it on the nail the what the most consistent and the theme that probably goes right to the top is that people don't come forward because they just want to come forward as such they want money they want this they want something else often they come forward because they don't want to see another young person another child another vulnerable adult have to suffer what they went through so that would be my call. Mm-hmm. We we have an 0800 number, um, a, a contact centre, which I think you might be able to uh, put up on your screen. But we also have a, a Pacific team, a Pacifica team, who are more than willing to engage. And anonymity is something that we can honour as well. So that's the other thing, you know, um, they don't just, you know, we run public hearings, but that's just one source of being able to get the message out to the public. We also do private sessions, which are one-on-one accounts with the commissioner. There's also policy and research. We'll we'll be doing focus groups and um, a number of other ways to, you know, to be accessible, to be accessible to our community at large. Hmm. Thank you very much for your time this morning. We speak live continuously over um, the work that you and your team are doing and the rest of the commissioners. And we look forward to a healthier, more responsive New Zealand out there moving forward, not just for our Pacific and Maori population, but for the, the wider goodness of this country. So thank you again. And we're wishing you a Merry Christmas and we hope to speak with you again in the new year. 
And can I just wish you and your listeners and your staff um, a safe and prosperous Christmas as well. Manuia, so